0: So I'm very happy today to be uh, co-hosting the Science of Reading Research Scope and Sequence Roundtable um, with all of the esteemed guests here, Um, myself being the absolute least uh, esteemed. I'm stuttering. I must be nervous. Um, So this was, uh, this started off because I did a a secondary meta-analysis on language factors. And um, this is something I did last year, um, and it's very similar to John Hattie's uh, type of Uh, list that he puts out every year where he looks at all the meta-analyses on education and tries to rank effect size factors um, to show what is most effective in education. Um, However, I really wanted to make that more specific. One of the most um, fair criticisms of John Hattie's work, although I'm actually a big fan of his, um, is that it's not specific to the context of the situation. Because what works in math instruction might be different from what works in reading instruction and what works for pre-Ks might work differently for grade 12s. So I recreated the same type of um, analysis, but I only looked at reading and writing instruction. And I also broke it down according to grade um, so that we could see how that changes over time. And I think that was really important in my mind because I think some factors, we like we know intuitively, are going to be way more important in the early grades, like phonemic awareness and phonics and letter ID instruction versus like um, some really advanced comprehension tactics or topics might make way more sense in the older grades. So I really wanted to take like an experimental approach and see what was the level of influence over reading instruction. Um, that being said, I I realized that the science, uh, the scientific literature that we have at its current state, as interesting as it is, it can't actually tell you how uh, to teach because it's not actually extensive enough at this point in my, my personal opinion to, to really be prescriptive. Um, So I thought it was necessary to to give teachers a guide to how to use this information to implement in their classrooms and what best practice was according to the current science. Um, So I reached out to three um, uh, researchers, slash professors, slash colleagues that I had a great deal of respect for um, in the field of uh, literacy education and research. And uh, they all luckily agreed to to take part in this. And uh, together we wrote a um, sort of scope and sequence. For the science of reading instruction that also looked at, at writing um, to try and give teachers a guide as to what a science of reading informed perspective looks like across the grades. Um, and I think we tried to make this based off the data, what the data was showing, but also based off our, our personal experiences and insights as teachers. Um, so if you don't know me at this point in the webinar, my name is Nate. I am the uh, lead writer for Pedagogy Non Grata and Teaching by Science I'm also the author of um, Teaching by the Scientific Principles of Teaching and the Scientific Principles of Reading Instruction. And i um, a teacher of 11 years and a nerd. I'm just a nerd. That's all. All right. So I'm going to give it over to the next person. Uh, and that is Dr. Garforth.
1: Hi, my name is Dr. Catherine Garforth. And I'm so excited to be here. Uh, this is a great effort uh, by the group of us to try and help make sure that we're able to bring that gap between research and practice. There is so much great information out there. Uh, and we wanted to make sure that we could dissolve the, the barrier between teachers and the research, as well as giving them guidelines of what they can do at their grade level um with their students that follows what research says. So my name is Dr. Catherine Garforth. I am from Garforth Education and the Right to Read Initiative and I am very excited to be here. Um, As you're watching, please drop in the comments where you're listening from because I know we'd love to go back and see where we're having people tune in from.
0: And Dr. Garforth is moderating the chat for um, questions. We might be, if we have time, we might take some questions from the audience. Um, uh, Dr. Rachel, do you want to introduce
2: yourself? Sure. Yes. Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Schechter, and I'm a researcher and I study program evaluation. So. Um, For over 11 years now, I've been looking at how different literacy curriculum uh, work in the classroom and what do the teachers think, what are their outcomes, what are the student outcomes at different grades. Most of my work focuses on elementary school. I ran the um, research team at Lexia Learning for many years, Um, and then after I, when I left Lexia, I went to HMH, uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, where it was really exciting. I got a chance to work on so many different programs, and there, I focused more on using the science of learning to impact product development. And so many times, we'd be, you know, asking ourselves and looking at the research: "What does the research say about this? What does the research say about that?" In fact, I started a an internal blog called "The Research Says" because <laughs> that's what everyone's always asking: "What does the research say?" And um, because we, because everybody wants to make informed decisions. We want to get the information out there so that we're feeling really confident about the decisions we're making. Um, so now what I what I love about what I'm doing is I get to do a little bit of product development and I'm back in the efficacy world. And I now do what I was doing at Lexia and HMH, but I do it for lots and lots of different companies under my own brand. And it's called Learning Experience Design, LXD um, Research. And while a lot of the products I study include technology, um, really that technology is being leveraged to help support the teacher meet individual students' needs. Um, With the pandemic, um, this work is so, so critical. So I'm I'm excited to be partnering with over a dozen school districts um, this year right now to study curriculum being used in the schools all around the country. So Um, I'm so thankful for being part of this group and I'm looking forward to the conversation today.
0: And I I just wanna say, uh, I have to read a lot of phonics studies for my website and uh, um, a large number of the studies I've come across that have been really, really well done. (laughs) I've looked afterwards and been like, oh, it was done by Rachel, of course. (laughs) Um, And it is a surprisingly large amount of the research in this field has been done by Rachel. It's it's shocking actually. Thank thank you. (laughs) uh, Dr. Dr. Noel, would you like to introduce yourself?
3: Hi, um, I'm Dr. Brandy Noll, and I'm in Canton, Ohio. And I spent the first half of my career in K-12 schools, um, learning how to teach kids how to read myself and uh, working with a lot of the most struggling readers in the schools, and then turned my attention to working with other teachers to help them, to help the most struggling readers in their classrooms. Um, I transitioned into higher ed and continued to work in schools, um, consulting with schools on major curriculum um, overrides and evaluations, training teachers, um, bringing best practices into the classroom. And um, I've been in higher education for about the last dozen years uh, in teacher prep programs, working with future teachers and trying to help them be well prepared to enter the teach the teaching uh, workforce. And on the side, I've written uh, multiple articles, uh, a book evaluating the curriculum for preschool literacy. And I'm also currently working, um, I have a a large focus on um, students' rights to learn to read uh, in the classroom and uh, it being just a basic human right. And so I've worked with, uh, I'm right now working with UNICEF through the United Nations on revising their education reading component of a screener that's been used in 50 countries. And its goal is to highlight countries that are in, um, that have stark educational needs um, where kids aren't learning to read and deserve to learn to read and then funds can be sent to those uh, countries. So I have a great passion for um, making sure that all kids can learn to read because we know there's such a strong connection between being able to read and success in life but also that negative connection of students who can't read and the negative repercussions and pathways that they end up suffering. So um, I'm super excited to be in this group. Um, The science of reading push has really um, caused waves in my area and across uh, the nation and even the world. And um, I was first connected with Nate because we had such a passion for making sure that people stayed on track with the research. Let's stay on track with the research here. Let's not get diverted by uh, fads and the newest cool things and uh, you know what this teacher said she was doing, but let's really stay focused on what do we know works. So I think this whole panel today um, and this work that we're highlighting so meets that need.
0: Well, I, I'm just honored to be doing this presentation with all of you. Um, but uh, before I gush about how great all of you are any further, um, and we lose some of the precious time, I think I'll, I'll get started. Uh, so this is just a, a quick highlight of the secondary meta-analysis I did. So uh, I took the effect sizes found in meta-analyses, that's studies of studies, and I analyzed all of those meta-analyses together to sort of create a hierarchical list of teaching instructional strategies. Although I think sometimes people see stuff like this and they get really caught up in the horse race of like, oh, what's ranked where? Um, And I really think that's not a good way to use this type of um, analysis. I think it's better to look at sort of the general vicinity because uh, the research on education is not so specific in its uh, measurements that your uh, small differences are going to matter. So, for example, printing versus um, spelling for reading outcomes, the difference is 002 that is not a statistically significant difference. You shouldn't look at this graph and be like, ah, printing is more important than spelling. Uh, I really don't think so. Um, that's why we sort of highlighted it by color. So the, the factors that are blue, these are factors that we have really strong, robust evidence for in the research to show that they help students learn. And the factors that are in green, that's where we have decently strong evidence that this helps students learn how to read. And then the, st- the factors that are orange, those are the factors that, there's some evidence that it, that it works or it might help students. And then the factors that are red are the ones where we basically have n- no meaningful evidence that it helps students um, because the, there is a margin of error to this type of research. So anything below, in effect size a 0.20 is generally speaking seen as negligible. There can be debate on that, but we don't need to get into that level of minutiae tonight. Um, so just uh, to highlight some of the ones that were in blue um, that were really showed to be really helpful, writing strategies, reciprocal teaching. Um, uh, mnemonics-based phonics, modeling comprehension, printing, spelling for reading outcomes. And I'm going to point this out because it came up in our earlier conversations. One of the ones really high up at the top is writing strategies, and it's also really close to the bottom. And that was because in one meta-analysis it was measuring writing outcomes because I was looking at writing and reading. And in another one, it was looking at reading outcomes. So uh, teaching students how to write or strategies to improve their writing really improves writing uh, outcomes, but it doesn't really improve reading. Um, So time and a place, I suppose. Um, I'm not going to read everyone on the list here. Uh, these are all the strategies we have, um, decently strong evidence suggesting they work, um, and I would say probably anything in this this list here is worth of your time. Um, when we get to the the orange, um, these are issues or things where we have evidence that might um, suggest that they're useful or might not. Um, uh, but it doesn't mean necessarily that they're, they're bad, it just might mean that there's less research to, that is specific enough to highlight the advantages of these approaches. So for example, um, Orton-Gillingham programs have generally speaking on average showed lower outcomes than other phonics program studies. But we have Orton-Gillingham phonics studies that do show high outcomes specifically for the SPIRE program. There's some really high outcomes there. Uh, I've given up trying to figure out why that might be if I'm being honest. But my best guess is that maybe there's certain populations that really benefit from that style of instruction. And there might be certain populations that don't. Um, and red, uh, things that we don't have significant research um, showing that they work. Um, again, you see writing methods at the bottom. This one was for reading outcomes. Teaching kids how to write uh, doesn't necessarily, or methods for improving their writing won't necessarily improve their reading. So um, we have this nifty uh, infographic made by um, Joshua King and uh, help design by um, Dr. Garforth and I, and Dr. Garforth is going to introduce it. Are you looking for your new button?
1: Yes, I was. All right, so this is something that we're referring to as the science of reading research rope. Now, it has its obvious nods to the work of Tumner and Goff uh, with their simple view of variating, highlighting word recognition and language comprehension, and of course, Dr. Hollis Scarborough's reading rope. The uniqueness that this contributes is if you look at the top of the graphic, we see that it specifically highlights different grade levels. Providing educators with more guidance as to what skills we should be focusing on at which levels. So, on top, we see the skills, and in between the two ropes, we see the targeted skills that are most likely going to have the biggest effects of improving reading outcomes if they're focused on in these. Age ranges, and these are both elements that work on word recognition and language comprehension strategies.
0: Okay, oh,
1: that's what I was going to say.
0: On to the next one. Sorry, I was busy sharing our webinar on the internet. I I misplaced what was happening. Uh, I'm been caught. Okay, so. To talk about the scope and sequence, we wrote a scope and sequence um, based on the data, as I said previously. And again, I just want to implement or reinforce that the science of reading is awesome. It can tell us some things that are most important, but we don't have a level of science that is prescriptive. You know, for example, something we're talking about earlier in the discussion before we went live was um, the level of linguistic accuracy in a phonics program. Because we can imagine that the more linguistically accurate something is, generally speaking, the more helpful it is but there's probably a point where it's too linguistically accurate and we're overwhelming children. And I have no idea what that that point is. And I don't think the science has really looked at that issue. Um, So we can't be overly specific if we're saying we're being informed by the science, at least not in my opinion. Um, However, that's why uh, as a group, we decided to work together collectively to make some basic recommendations based off of our personal experiences and the science of reading and how that can be implemented in a classroom level. Um, And we're going to be started off by Dr. Garforth. For pre-k and kindergarten.
1: Okay well when we look at the science of reading research rope we see that in pre-k and kindergarten the skills that we want to focus on are printing, phonemic awareness, letter identification, and phonics. Now before I go into those into further detail I think it's important to highlight that When we created this document, we wanted to have a broad scope as possible. And when we're looking at where people are joining us in from, we see people from across North America and in Australia. And we have to acknowledge that the educational setting and systems are different in these places. In some places, students start school, formal schooling at age four, whereas in other places, it's not essential to begin schooling until grade one. So that gives a big range of skills that we're expecting to be covered. Now in a home daycare setting or in a group daycare setting, we're not expecting the same stringent formal curricula to be covered uh, just because it's not the nature of the setting. But there are skills that need to be highlighted. Some of these pre-reading skills include phonological awareness. Phonological awareness is an essential component of this. But phonological awareness can be broken down into two components. There is phonological sensitivity When we play more at the word level, looking at rhyming and breaking words into syllables, and there's also the phonemic awareness, what looks at the skills that are essential for reading to develop. In the pre-K setting, it is essential that we have phonological awareness activities included in the day-to-day so that students learn to have that awareness of the spoken language and sound. It is ideal when we're looking at phonemic awareness. So that's the awareness of the individual speech sounds within the language. And in the pre-k environment, we're looking at words that begin with the same sound, uh, looking for that alliteration. We also want to try and break words into their individual phonemes. So going from pin to now it's ideal if when we're doing this we have letters available for them to see to start making those relationships between the sounds and spoken language and the letters that represent them. As soon as we hit The kindergarten level, so that's when we're working with students who are five years old, that's when the formal reading instruction begins. And it's essential that we include letters in the phonemic awareness component. So we will talk about breaking the word into its speech sounds and blending them together. So blending and segmenting the word, but also drawing the attention to the relationship of that speech sound to the grapheme or the letter that represents it in the alphabet. We also work on phonics at this stage and that is the relationship between the graphemes and the phonemes or the letters of the sound and the sounds in the language. Students need to develop this relationship to an automatic level so that they can be effective readers. Other pre-reading skills include concepts about print and books. So you want students to realize that this is a book and in English, we read it from left to right. We don't wanna read it upside down. We don't start this way. These are all skills that are important to highlight at this stage and understanding the different concepts this is where we want to discuss these in kindergarten and in pre-kindergarten, and it's in a fun and playful manner. We also want them to understand that we have words and sentences, and as we build these skills, they are going to be more prepared for reading. They also need to build up their alphabetic knowledge, understanding what these weird shapes mean and how we go from squiggles on a page to letters of the alphabet that can inform us what words are. We also need to begin that explicit letter sound correspondence instruction at the kindergarten level to have a successful start out to reading. We want this to be explicit instruction. So we are taking the time to purposely teach students the relationships between the letters and sounds and using those skills that we worked on in our phonemic awareness to blend those sounds together to recognize a word. In the pre-K and K stage, we're really working on those word recognition skills. So building the understanding of what these words say. Language comprehension still is a critical component of the curriculum that during our English language arts periods, or when we're actually teaching reading to students, we can have more of our focus on the actual word reading so that they can read the words. Because if they can't read the words, they can't understand what the words are saying. As we move on throughout the day in our other activities, we can focus on the language comprehension component of the reading rope and the science of reading, or the science of reading research rope. This means that we're actually helping them understand how to take meaning from what we're communicating. The other things that we wanna work on in these phase of instruction is making sure that we have the foundations of writing. So understanding, you know, this is a pencil and it's a writing implement and how we want to hold it. We want to help teach the letter formation in combination with our phonics program so that they realize the relationship between letters and sounds. We want to build their fluency so that they can do it without hesitation and having to think. As we do this, it's going to make it so the students have more success in learning how to read. We also want to work at the word level. So not just asking students to read words, but asking them to spell them and seeing the relationship between the text and the print and how not only do we read it, but we can also write it. Fluency instruction is important, but at this level, we want to build the fluency of understanding the letters of the alphabet, their names and the associated phonemes that go with them. We want to make sure that we're helping build these students' vocabulary by using great language within our classrooms so that we can build on their knowledge and their language comprehension skills. And I think I'm out of time.
0: Okay, so uh, Rachel or Brandy, do either of you have anything you want to add to that? Oh, I think Brandy does.
3: No, I was just gonna say well said, but I forgot to unmute myself, so.
0: (laughs) Uh, Rachel, do you have anything you want to add?
2: Yeah, I think that one of the things with pre-kindergarten. I remember I once did a training for pre-kindergarten teachers. I also taught music for um, parents and infants and toddlers for a long, long time. And there's so much opportunity throughout the day incorporated into transition times, incorporated into um, just like other areas that aren't necessarily the morning meeting time. And I think that when we, when we um, can incorporate this kind of learning um, into those transitions throughout the day um, and not even, even, even in the hallways, right? Not even just in the classroom, that's where um, so much more opportunity is gonna be able to come about for these youngest learners. So I appreciate all the great examples. And then also kind of let's like just like what I wanna do is just extend that. Um, Cause so in my workshop, I was talking about science and the literacy teachers actually sat in the back of the room and were like, yeah, this is not for us. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, well, you're welcome. Uh, to And when we started talking about science and exploring ice turning into water and things like that, like, we didn't realize there was so much vocabulary opportunities with science learning. See, they didn't really, you know, they didn't think about how science time could incorporate and support pre-literacy. So um there's
0: just so much, so that's what I wanted to add. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. And I just think, you know, when students line up, that's a great time to do some oral only PA. Um, and it's funny, I, I can be one of the person who like criticizes the oral and the PA drills um, because we don't have the greatest evidence of efficacy for them, but you know, it's just such an easy time to do it. Like we know that it might help a little and having, you know, students like clap out with sounds and a word while they're waiting for, you know, to go to the recess that's a moment of teaching that you just created out of basically thin air and, and that'd be a great time. And um, I think
2: if you're oh. worried about being loud, you can do finger touches.
0: Oh yeah. That's the a great point. can
2: Speak quietly and everyone can be listening.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just, I, I kind of wanted to, uh, address the, one of the the myths I thought that sometimes comes up in pre-K and K and, and that is just that I I've often see, I'll sometimes say, see people ask what's the best phonics program for kindergarten and somebody will respond with like an only an oral only PA program and that can be used in those grades but we also want to make sure that we pair that with letter instruction and some phonics instruction and I think it gets confused because you know the, the National Reading Panel which was a great report showed the highest outcomes for phonemic awareness or almost anything actually for phonemic awareness in kindergarten and pre-k but that doesn't mean it should be the only thing we teach. So I think we just need to make sure that we include other types of instruction alongside that, specifically with letters. Um, and okay. I
3: think, and I just, I'd love to add before we move on here is, okay. I think the concepts we've been talking about just uh, in the last few minutes, go to the idea that every minute matters and that we wanna spend our minutes wisely that we have with our students. And so like that line up and do phonemic awareness um, collaboration of time is and but it's applicable to as we move through older grades to to say you know let's look at the time we're spending on things and our time in general and make sure we're being efficient and also including things that are high yield strategies
0: 100 all My right
3: transition.
2: Thank so you. rachel
0: is going perfect to present transition. You, uh grades one and two
2: the reason why that's such a perfect transition is because so i came from lexia and i and really, anytime you're making a program, especially a digital program or no, or print program, basically any program that where you have to decide what's going on a paper or what's going in a computer, you need to pick what is going to be in here and how much time are we dedicating each thing. And I remember when I first saw the scope and sequence for grades one and grade one, I was like, oh, my gosh, did you put too many phonics activities in there there? <laughs> They're like taking over, and they're like, No, Rachel, we need them. We need these phonics activities in here Um, because we have to have explicit encoding and explicit decoding, right? On our single syllable words, CVC, CCVC, all of them. Um, And then also our phonetically regular two syllable words, right? That's going to be a great one. And then we're going to be continuing to encoding, doing our encoding practice. In our with two syllable words in second grade. And I'm going to be talking about this kind of like grade one, grade two, and building. Um, and, you know, we're not going to drop our blending and segmenting off with the kindergarten. No, we're going to be continuing to refresh, review, and build on, on those two. And then bringing in our vowel diagraphs, right? And our additional consonant diagraphs in grade one. Then our grade two. We're gonna be focusing on that syllable structure and the syllable types. I was explaining to a colleague recently how there are six syllable types. He's like, what? <laughs> he had no idea. He had no idea there were six syllable types. I was like, yeah. So when you learn the syllable types and you recognize them, then you kind of know how to read that part of the word. He's like, mind blown. Um, <laughs> but yes, we could be teaching right these students how to decode multi-syllable words where they, lo- where they know the structure and then and the types and how to recognize them and then be able to pronounce so many of that you know, well all of them. Um, and then, you know, at this time, we're gonna do more incidental in second grade of that instruction of blending and segmenting. Um, and then, you know, by the end of second grade, our goal is to have mastered those common grapheme, phoneme, correspondences, You know, so they're ready for third grade Um, for I I did I I snuck in spelling and writing kind of after encoding and decoding um, because they are so related. So our spelling instruction in grade one are really going to be building off that phonemic awareness, right, that we started in kindergarten and that beginning phonics instruction, and this is where students are going to be, you know, using their own invented spelling. They're going to be spelling words out on their own using the letters and sounds that they know and are learning, right? And they're going to be getting um, more accurate um, as more spelling instruction as, comes into play, and then gets um, more advanced in second grade, um, and then building our and building our handwriting stamina, right? from kindergarten doing maybe single letters. Now we're gonna be doing, you know, and maybe single words building into those sentences. Now we're gonna also have explicit sentence instruction in grade one, simple sentences, the rules of the sentences, how the spacing of the the words, the sentence, punctuation, capital letters. And then in our second grade, we're gonna be building on that with editing. So, um, and explicitly teaching students how to edit their sentences, right? To build their their stories Um, and continuing to reinforce the letter formation, spacing, punctuation, capitals. Um, So now morphology. So in grade one, we're gonna be introducing explicit morphology instruction you know, teaching them those morphemes, um, couple couple I have on my list here for you: um, full, li, pre, re, non, er, est. <laughs> nice little handful for you. Um, um, and then incidental morphological morphological instruction, you know, from relevant materials that are hap- You know, again, being brought in ideally, or you know, theoretically, throughout the day, right? In our some of those other subjects as well um and i love pointing out you know with my I, I i mostly just teach my children now um how to read uh so what we do is i really bring in um when i when we see these multi multi multiple, multi syllable words um and i recognize um you know some of these morphemes we can bring in and help them understand oh when we see a word that ends in l e s s what does that mean and then I also can kind of bring up different words that have that same ending. And we talk about what how that means in this with this word, with that word. So in any case, this is explicit. Um, and you're going to be building more of those morphemes in their in their um knowledge bank. Um, and then maybe maybe one of the other the other folks can build on the, et- the etymology instruction, um, especially because we brought up um that earlier today. So when I'm done, you you all couldn't bring that up. The next thing I have is um, repeated reading. So with our repeated reading, this is going to be on the student instructional on on student instructional level. And we're going to be building in explicit comprehension instruction for fiction and nonfiction texts, retelling the plot, key concepts, characters. This is all going to start in first grade. And then we're gonna be continuing to practice and build on that, not only with, with stories that they are here, but that they read and even um, that they maybe read and write for each other. I think I'm also running out of time. So the last thing I'll point out is that it is critical to practice high frequency words that are non-phonetic to help build automaticity as students are reading more complex texts. Um, And just a quick note about materials, Um, you know, a first and second grade classroom need to have a couple different libraries. They need to have the decodable texts that they're going to be able to read and um, on their own. And then they also should have authentic texts that they can get support to read or that are being read out loud, um, or that they they can read on and also have availability for um, online reading. Um, so that way they can get start to get exposed to more material than what they could potentially only read themselves.
0: Brandy, would you like to contribute to that at all?
3: Um, I, I actually, when I start talking about grades three and four, can transition there. So I'll leave the floor to other people.
0: Okay. Um, I, I just want to point out that personally, I I really feel like the encoding, decoding, morphology instruction is the most important part of the grade one and grade two instruction. I think it's really going to be what helps to build that base for their their future reading ability. And that doesn't mean we ignore fluency. I mean, I think we can do a lot of fluency, especially if we incorporate um, some decodable text as a possibility. Um, and then I think we also need to include comprehension. I think like I agree with um, Rachel completely that we can couple that, you know. That fluency instruction the comprehension instruction especially if we're working in small groups get the students to read a decodable text and then ask them to retell the events the story or talk about the characters or how they feel about the story um but then also we can you know bring in an off uh, an authentic text and read them a more complex thing and have an answer ask them some more sophisticated comprehension questions especially as like a whole group activity you know you might want that more fun story when you're doing like a story time kids love stories um i think that's a great way to do uh build building the comprehension because there, I think a lot of students will still have low reading ability, but it'll make some of that reading comprehension tasks very difficult. And I think it's more important to build in that um, ability to read the individual words more first. Dr. Garforth, do you have anything to add?
1: I was just going to say one thing that's important to remember is to build fluency, we need words to be orthographically mapped right? So they need to become part of our sight word vocabulary so that we can recognize them within a fraction of a second. And these skills, such as practicing encoding, decoding, and morphology is going to help, and sorry, the the non phonetic vocabulary identification, that's going to help build the student's sight word vocabulary, which in turn will impact their reading fluency.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I just want to comment on the the sight word vocabulary, and there's, I'm going to put that in quotations because there's debate about what what phrasing to use there. And I think just because there's some debate on how to teach sight words, um, from I, I took the perspective of looking at this through meta-analysis because you know we're systematically evaluating the empirical research to show what level of evidence we have for things. Um, and there's very little uh, meta-analysis research on on sight words. There is some, but it's not particularly helpful in breaking down a type of instruction for it. So we know that teaching sight words matters, but there's, from a meta-analysis perspective, there's very little information as to like how best to do it. And I I think there's a lot of theories out there. I know Dr. Bowers promotes looking at sight words through morphology because they're irregularly spelled. Um, I know that the heart words method has become really popular. Um, I know that um, Marty Ginsberg has promoted teaching it as part of the PA curriculum, which which is how I like to do it personally, but that's my personal preference. I don't think there is necessarily a correct answer here. Um, I think it makes sense to say that there's an argument against memorization and argument for. I think Dr. Shanahan has made the argument for memorization, um, basically pointing out there's actually not that many of these sight words, and it probably isn't that hard to to remember them. Although if you look at the very bottom of my list um, on the secondary meta-analysis, the thing we have the least amount of evidence for is memorization and for um, whole language instruction. So I can see the resistance that some people have to trying to, to memorize side words. And personally, I don't have a great answer. I, I think it's it's gonna be some personal preference for teachers on how they instruct um, that particular component of language. Dr. Garforth, do you have anything to add to that?
1: No, I think that sums it up. We, we need to really, I mean, there needs to be more research in the area, but I think, The cognitive neuroscience research is pretty much confirmed that there is the visual word form area in the human brain and we need to get efficient at putting words in that visual word form area to build reading fluency so that we can read effortlessly and then focus on the language comprehension or the the reading comprehension.
0: Awesome, all right. Uh, Brandy, are you ready to present grades three and four? Yes, and I am.
3: And I, and I just wanted to contribute um, one comment to do having to do with sight words is um, you know kind of the philo- philosophical view of um, I want kids to look at words and have strategies to figure them out, and so I want that to be consistent in my classroom. So it kind of goes against that philosophy if we say to kids, well, sometimes they'll just come across words and you just have to know them. And so uh, you know, we want kids to have strategies and use strategies and know that sometimes those strategies work and sometimes they don't. But a child can't compartmentalize to say, oh, here's a word I don't know. Oh, that's a sight word, I can just know it. Or versus, oh, here's a word that has word parts in it. How can I attack it? What's the vowel sound? So um, kids can't differentiate. We need to give them a strategy that's consistent And so I think that kind of goes towards the idea of, even when I'm teaching sight words, kids still need strategies of attack. Um, But I'm gonna move forward to grades three, four, and we'll actually see kind of a big shift uh, at this grade level, because uh, there was definitely a word focus, uh, a word level focus at the earlier grades. And in grades three through four, we generally tend to see a movement away from focusing on uh, individual words, not that there won't be any word work, but when we look at it from a large perspective, then we we see that we're spending less time just talking about individual words and spending more time with sentences and paragraphs and passages. So the amount of text that kids are asked to consume and produce has greatly increased in, in a gradual manner across grades three, four. Um, So definitely at the beginning of grade three, um, there'll be, you know, definitely kids who are still working on word work heavily and um, decoding words individually, but most kids have transitioned uh, into the next stage as far as full alphabetic stage where um, they can recognize where if there's been good instruction, they can recognize words and now they're trying to put all those words together. So, but we're still, of course, working on spelling that gives us an opportunity to work on words in a different manner where we're encoding um, and matching that with our decoding so that it's integrated seamlessly. Um, Not that I'm just picking random spelling words because they're in a story that I have and they have no connection um, linguistically, but a very targeted uh, focus on ones, especially when we're integrating um, the sounds that pieces of the words make like morphology in um, the actual pieces of words themselves, so that um, we're no longer just like looking at, oh, what, ace, uh, what vowel sound is the A making here, but we're looking more at word chunks, roots, bases, um, affixes, so. And then um, as far as writing goes, also, like I said, producing more writing um, than they were expected to in the past, and uh, the writing is getting Uh, more complex and as well as the text that they're reading. So, you know, we're mimicking that complexity level increase, um, as we move through, Uh, fluency related, um, repeated readings tend to, in my area, at least get left off after the early grades. But, um, like Nate's research has shown that, um, there's still great effect sizes for repeated readings. Um, as long as they're short texts, we're not having kids reread uh, entire chapters of books, um, kind of gets beyond the focus of the idea of Short amount of text that might be hard for the kids to read in multiple practice. Uh, and then comprehension, what we keep seeing throughout is that modeling comprehension has great effect sizes. So not just expecting kids to comprehend, but showing them how. And um, of course, uh, working on comprehension with a variety of types of text, fiction and nonfiction. Using graphic organizers to organize their thoughts and moving into the idea of reading to learn, which goes along with the idea of note taking um, we can note take to write down the main ideas or big ideas. Uh, it's a writing tool that can help kids to um, summarize their uh, ideas as they're reading. So. Does Anybody want to contribute anything to uh,
0: I just, I just want to make a quick disclaimer because I think we should have mentioned this earlier and I, I sort of slipped my memory. Um, when we go through this, we're talking about core instruction. So we're not talking about, uh, tier two or tier three instruction. So, uh, yes, we think that the research shows that the class should not be doing decoding instruction at this grade. Um, but if, if you have students in your class who are, um, Uh, still struggling to decode or still not mastered those sounds. I mean, I think it makes perfect sense that we go back and we teach those individual students. We just ideally wouldn't teach your whole class. Um, And whenever I I post this on social media, somebody always asks me, well, what if my entire class is behind? Well, of course, if your whole class is really far behind, you should teach to your class's needs. But I think you should be very careful that you, uh, you know for sure that your whole class is there and that you've actually assessed And that's not like an anecdotal observation, like my class seems low, so I'm gonna do phonemic awareness drills. I would make sure that I know that for sure. And that it's the whole class before I I start, you know, teaching a kindergarten curriculum to a grade four um, classroom. Um, But that's just the one caveat I I really want to make. And I'll I'll ask uh, Dr. Rachel, or sorry, Rachel, do you have anything to say?
2: Yeah, I wanted to just riff a little bit off the note taking, um, because in the science of learning, there's a really important, um, phenomenon uh, called retrieval practice, and actually, I helped consult with ISTI last year on having um, a list of learning sciences um, research um, strategies that we should be, you know, com- products, excuse me, that district should be looking at when they're re- reviewing curriculum. And when you mentioned note-taking, that really stuck out to me as remember- as thinking about retrieval and how um, in comprehension, when we're doing this comprehension work, and when even actually when we're doing any of this work, we wanna give students a chance to really retrieve that information um, before we give it to them. And also like putting the text away Right, so that they can retrieve it without looking back. If they can't, then they go back. Um, Just kind of like thinking about ways to give the students a chance to retrieve before the information is given and having space in between those retrievals helps also deepen learning.
3: There's a lot of research about if you write something, then uh, working it into your long-term memory, um, writing it down. And We've had such a focus lately on um, kids using computers, but the the same research doesn't show the same results for when kids are typing into boxes or typing into Word or whatever system they're using, but that uh, actually handwriting things uh, is a process of output so that you can remember.
2: Yeah, more more than anything too, is like the computer has a lot of also distractions. (laughs) So handwriting is also um, really key for focus.
1: Nate, you're
0: muted. I, I just got the rest of there. I think it's also, it's really clear that writing helps improve um, those really basic skills like, the, like <coughs> and phonical knowledge. You know, not just having the kids hear the sound and read the sound but also having them practice writing that this is the letter graphing correspondence that matches the sound. Um, and I think this is really represented in Dr. Graham's meta-analysis on, um, he looked at the effect of writing instruction on reading outputs, and he found a greater um, outcome for spelling instruction on reading than we see for phonics instruction on reading. And that's not to say that you should not teach phonics. I think you should teach them together, personally. Um, uh, Garforth, or sorry, Catherine, do you have anything to add to that?
1: Um, Just highlighting the importance of screening students at all levels, especially at the beginning of the year to figure out where your class is. So you can appropriately teach their needs and remember to continue screening throughout the year. So you have an accurate assessment of what, whether or not the teaching that you are doing is working.
0: Yeah. I I really love that point actually, because I, I often hear people make really anecdotal observations about students or their class. Like, Oh, my student, my class is really high. We don't need to teach phonics. Um, or my class is really low. We need to teach phonics, and I feel like if you haven't assessed that, you don't know that. You have to, you have to test that on a student level. It's not enough to be like, I noticed in class I have a high class or a low class.
2: And and having a test that assesses those things. Um, I did a um, a correlation earlier this year with Acadians reading and the Core Phonics Survey, and actually there's almost no correlation for first graders who are below grade level. So there's there the the test scores aren't correlated. So you would need to do both to know. Wow, that's awesome You know. All right. And, I mean,
3: and it, while we're on the topic, I'd like to include, um, you know, when we're talking about assessing kids or like Nate's comment of the teacher who said, you know, my students don't need phonics anymore. Um, my oldest daughter was a great example in first grade. She got moved up, she was in a multi-age classroom. She got moved up to the highest reading level reading with second graders, chapter books uh, in first grade and her reading was you know going great so she actually got moved they were only doing phonics with first grade students so she was excluded from the phonics instruction and i had a meeting with her teacher and i said have you seen her writing because um she was an obvious word memorizer when she was reading she wasn't using decoding she was just memorizing her words so she was a great memorizer and then looks like a great reader But if you looked at her spelling, you could realize she had little knowledge of uh, letter sound correspondence. And so um, her her great reading made her teachers feel like phonics wasn't necessary, but spelling, uh, looking at students spelling is such an eye-opening way to see what's their brain doing when they're segmenting and um, trying to attach
2: letters to sounds. Back to writing, there you go.
0: (laughs) I could talk about this one topic here all night, but we gotta move on to the next slide. Okay, grade five, and
3: six. Uh, and in the sense of time, since uh, we are like taking a little longer than we had planned, I will say that I will be very short and sweet with the five, six slide because it's so similar to the grades three, four category. Um, we're again seeing some of the same things that are high yield strategies to work on. That morphology is still um, really important to focus on word parts, dissecting words, um, looking at roots and bases and affixes and talking about how they change the word or word families word matrix matrixes. we're still seeing um that writing is important it's just getting more complex we should still be modeling for students definitely um we're seeing students who are having to uh the connection of reading and writing they're reading longer more complex texts and then they're having to write about them so the complexity of the text they're reading is changing so we're asking them to do um this, harder, more complex idea of uh, synthesizing information across them. Repeated readings are still showing gains for students with short texts. I would like to include here the preface of please don't tell the students to read the text three times for no reason. We need to give kids reasons to go back to text so that they are doing repeated readings, but it's not just because the teacher told me to read it three times. Like, um, let's go back in and look for evidence of this. They read back through it. Uh, let's go back in and see, uh, let's look, be particularly looking for this when you go back and read this text. So kids aren't even noticing that they're repeated readings, but they're for a purpose. And then comprehension again, modeling, we have to show them how, explicit instruction, um, using graphic organizers, retelling, um, making sure we're focusing on the specific components of nonfiction and fiction, like text structure and nonfiction or um, literary components in fiction
0: um Catherine, do you have anything to add to that
3: anybody want to add anything
1: i think it's the important explicit teaching of these items especially when it comes to graphic organizers and uh, nor- uh note-taking strategies so that we're not just leaving it to the students who are going to figure out out on their own anyways we're making sure that all students in the class are learning these essential skills because it's really going to set them up for success in the long run, especially if we look at where their cognitive development is, especially around the skills related to executive functioning and organization, Uh, they aren't there yet. So at this point, if we teach it to them and give them the structure structure to develop it, they're gonna be set up for success.
0: Uh, Rachel, do you wanna add anything to that? Okay, I'm gonna talk about repeated reading for a quick second. Uh, It's become a little bit of a pet topic of mine. Uh, It's actually one of the most read articles on um, my website for some reason. And uh, it's just, it's funny to me because I kind of get it at the one hand, like it sounds really boring, repeated reading. Um, It does. It sounds like such an authoritarian, like 1800 schoolhouse strategy, but like the research like so, uh, so clearly shows that it's a high yield strategy. And personally, I actually think it makes the most sense in this grades three to six range um, to use. And that's not to say that we shouldn't use it in earlier grades. Like I think we can use in grade one and two, maybe even a little in kindergarten. I wouldn't try and do it in pre-K personally. Um, but uh, because, you know, we are, our students, they often, they have their their letter graphing correspondences. They know the sounds, like you can point to any sound and they know what it is, but they might not have reached that level of automaticity yet with it. And um, they might not know their regular sight words uh, with level of automaticity and just giving them that, type of instruction to help them really build the automaticity in language and build that fluency is great. Um, and the research, there has been research highlight. I noticed you highlighted the the three readings and there was a couple studies looking at three readings showing high outcomes, but there, there actually was better outcomes when we didn't do it to a specific number of readings, but rather when we did it to mastery, I really like to do it with poems in my class. So like, I'll read a poem to the kids and then like a short poem, and then I'll have them read it back to me. And usually you, as yeah, so they'll read it back to you quarterly and like the first time it sounds awful because uh they don't have that they can't read that text fluently and then the second time it sounds a little better and that third time often it sounds beautiful um but um you can really hear the, res- the improvement of each reading when you do it quarterly so i really like that and it's also fun to do with um i shouldn't say fun it's probably never a fun strategy but it's also it can be good to use uh, i think with um acro knowledge or comprehension where we're looking at something, say, we're looking at history. If we have a history text next test next week, I might use uh, some of the material from that history curriculum and do a repeated reading drill with them. Um, but I think it's also important to remember as much as I think it might be really important in those grades three to six range. It's definitely not something you want to do. You don't want to have like a, a repeated reading class. Like I would never be like, today's our fluency class. And we're going to spend 40 minutes on repeated readings. And no, I think like five, 10 minutes, just so you don't, you know, bore the kids to death as a great way of using it uh, does anybody want to
3: and it's easy to integrate right into your instruction of the text that you're already having kids read too instead of setting aside a separate time where this is all we're doing with it like maybe we're exploring a nonfiction topic and we have some multiple texts and this was just a short uh two paragraph passage about let's say dolphins or something And then um, I have kids go back through that actual text. So we're using it from that text for multiple purposes instead of constantly finding a text so I can work on this and another text to work on this and another text to work on this type of reading strategy that we integrate those together and we use texts to work on multiple reading strategies. So it doesn't become that segmented instruction.
0: Okay, so I'm going to take us on to seven, eight and all the way to high school. And I'm covering all the older grades today. And um, I will say, I think I have a, a slightly unique perspective on this in the sense that I actually taught high school um, English and history uh, for a, qu- a couple of years before I switched to um, intermediate. And now I've been teaching uh, mostly grades six to eight for the last several years. Um, and I think that it gives me a little bit of perspective because I used to be that grade 12 teacher who saw the kids right before they went to college. And I'd have those moments of horror when they'd come into my, my class in grade 11 and they wouldn't know what an essay is, or they um, had very little exposure to formal writing. And I um, sometimes I felt like students had too much word work in those grade seven, eight classrooms when they were coming up to me in high school, because they really came in having so little exposure to formal writing. So for me personally, when I look at seven, eight, um, I would like to see minimal decoding instruction. I think some morphology instruction makes some sense, especially if it's for the purpose of adding a little bit of spelling or especially if it's for the purposes of like um doing a sort of structured word inquiry to to look at the dr bowers approach i think actually makes a ton of sense in this grade taking that approach because you know you might have a lot of um, content words come up and the kids might ask well why is that spelled that way or why is this what does this word mean and then doing a little bit of that deep dive on the morphology with it together as a group i think makes a lot of sense um but i think personally the biggest uh, focus in grade seven and eight should actually be comprehension instruction and writing instruction. So exposing them to more different types of text, um, background knowledge text, you know, more nonfiction, um, having them do lots of report writing, lots of research, teaching them, you know, that you can't just copy and paste something off the internet and call it your own. You have to actually rephrase a lot of what you're doing. You have to be citing what you're doing and just exposing them to these ideas. And I, realistically, for me, as someone who's taught grade seven to grade twelve. Actually, think the instruction is pretty similar. It's just that, you know, in grade seven, eight, which is where we sort of um, introduce these ideas for the most part of report writing, of formal writing, of citations, that maybe there's more than one style of citation, um, that how we write formally is different and um, really focusing on more complex text to comprehend. That's where we're introducing this stuff, in my opinion, for the most part. And then, you know, grade nine, grade 10, we're increasing the complexity of it We're increasing the the, the writing requirements. You know, instead of saying, hey, I want one to two pages, you might be saying, I want three to five pages. And then by grades 11, grade 12, especially if you're teaching a class of students that might be going on to university, um, we really want to be making that match what their next step is going to be as closely as possible. Not necessarily in our expectations of marking, but in the expectations of assignment. And I think personally, I'm a really big believer of setting the goalpost really high, like the basketball net really high, and then lifting the kids up to it. And I think there's this idea that, you know, when kids are struggling in those upper grades, just lower the expectations and bring it back down to a more elementary level. And I think um, we just provide more assistance, more support to help get them to those high expectations. Um, And uh, I I would highlight the actually research on um, Pygmalion theory or expectations, or John Hattie has looked at this a little, that showing that um, just believing our students are capable of higher levels of success actually can be one of the most powerful tools for improving learning results in a classroom. Um, And that's why I'm a really big believer that we shouldn't be on a core level of instruction learning results. And of course, if you have a student in your class and they're reading at a grade two or grade three level and they don't know their phonemes, go back and teach it to that individual student. But I I really wouldn't see that on um, uh, a systematic level of instruction in a classroom, ideally. And uh, I'll I'll pass it on to somebody else if they want to add
1: to that. I'd say that I I really like your um, description of the writing component and the importance of teaching structure and paragraph and essay. And I wanna add that when you do this, it's not just improving their writing, it's also improving their comprehension strategies because as they understand more complex arguments uh, and formal writing practices, they can then use those skills when they are reading more complex text.
2: You're muted again.
0: I was was just definitely agreeing with you. Actually, if you guys don't mind, I'm going to throw one more thing in here. For vocabulary, I think the research shows that teaching vocabulary on a systematic level at this age grade range doesn't work because there's so much background knowledge that we need to teach. that it's really hard to be like, I'm just going to teach all background knowledge that you could ever possibly need. It makes more sense to teach specifically to the units that you're going to teach. So if you're going to do a unit on Shakespeare, not that I would personally do that, but if you're going to teach a unit on Shakespeare... Um, have uh, some background Shakespeare vocabulary that you give them, Or if you're going to do a unit on philosophy, have um, philosophy words that you teach them as part of that unit so that um, we're aiding in the comprehension of what you're actually instructing to them.
1: And while you're doing that, incorporate the morphology instruction that goes along with it. And that's what I think is important to highlight is when we're looking at the academic language that we're beginning to introduce students to in those upper intermediate, middle school, high school grades has a lot of Greek and Latin origin. So it's a perfect time to tie in this morphological instruction.
0: Definitely. Uh, Brandy, do you have anything you wanna add to this?
1: I'm I'm
2: good. (laughs) Uh, Rachel. Uh, The only thing I wanted to point out is that even research that just came out over the summer was showing that in response to the pandemic, a lot um, teachers have been assigning work that's below grade level, and however, it's not it's not um, consistent across um, student populations. So one of the things they noticed is that students um, that are African American, for example, were were being given work that was below. Was more likely to be given work below grade level than the, student, the white students. So that's another thing that we want to look at with an equity lens um, and be like keeping and keeping track of it. So one of the things that was neat about this study is that they were able to actually keep track of it because it was all it was it happened to all be digital and the assignments were digital. Um, but I think that you know I think that most of us aren't in a fully digital assignment world. Um, So that way, so it's just like a reminder to be kind of like taking a moment and putting our equity lens on um, as we're preparing um, material for students and and thinking about those supports.
0: There's a long history of research in that area specifically showing that expectations are colored by racialized lenses. Actually, this is one of the areas of research that really got me interested in in, uh, science of teaching in the first place. Um, and there was a, a famous study, um, in a, a black school where they told teachers at the beginning of the year, Oh, you have a dumb class or you have a smart class. And they showed that the teachers who were told they have a smart class showed, uh, double the results of the teachers who were told they had a dumb class. But of course the researchers made it up. They didn't, the teachers didn't actually have a dumb or a smart class. And so those expectations can be really powerful and, uh, I think that's why it's so important when we get, and it becomes really an equity lens too, in the sense that if you don't give students that academic writing practice or that report writing practice or that high level comprehension practice, by the time they're getting to the end of these grades, um, if they do get into university, they won't be able to succeed. So it's really important that we give people the equity chance to succeed in higher education um, by providing them opportunities to practice. Okay, well, I think that's actually at the end of our presentation and we're ending almost on time mostly because I had the least to say of anyone Um, at the end. uh, Does anyone have any final thoughts for uh, the webinar?
1: I think it's important to mention those students that are in the intervention piece because this is mainly focused on whole class instruction. And one thing that we need to consider is when we're in that tier one whole class instruction, we need to make sure that we're providing our students who are lower achieving students opportunity to access grade appropriate text through the use of audiobooks, because that is where we see the Matthew effect occurring, because if they're not able to read at a level equivalent to their peers, they're not gonna have that same vocabulary access. And that is where we see the largest growth in vocabulary is when they're getting it through reading course content and course material. So it's important that we give them access to materials at their grade level or their comprehension level to build their vocabulary and background knowledge, even though it may not be at their reading level.
0: Definitely. Um, Brandy, do you have anything to add as a final statement?
3: Um, I think that the good points were made about the idea of um full class instruction versus intervention for kids who need it. Um, I think the other thing to note is that we have these lists on slides, but everything is not equal. Um, so uh like we've mentioned a couple of times on different slides, that the time that and attention that we give to different components at different levels varies. And so it's not that I will spend equal time on all these things on this slide for this grade level, but these are all components I want to include at some in some capacity, depending on my students, depending on my instruction, depending on um, you know, the layout of my day, that I need to use my time most efficiently on things that work. And I need to make sure I'm not missing any of the big uh, high yield strategies uh, that will give me um, great returns on time.
0: Yeah, I, I, I completely agree that you, you've, you've basically said what I wanted to say as my final thought, that this all just comes down to time management. And um, it's not about saying, hey, like it should be phonics first or phonics only in, in grades one and two. Um, not at all. Like we need to include fluency and um, comprehension instruction in those grades. But it is about saying what works the best in each grade and, and maybe diverting a little bit more of our attention and time. Um, to those and um, one of the things we put into the curriculum document that we gave or the scope and sequence whatever you want to call it was we had explicit instruction listed for the things we thought were most likely to benefit your students based off the research and incidental instruction for the things that we thought we definitely want to include but the research doesn't necessarily show the same level of effect for Um, Rachel do you have any final thoughts I think you get the last word for the webinar
2: um, actually, can, can you just uh, pop through to our if you want to learn more slide? Oh, yes, uh, that's
0: right. <laughs> what
1: am I doing?
2: So we know this is a lot of information. Um, we have the amazing, wonderful article that we all collaborated on um, for you to go back and read and hear more and get definitions and click around to um, understand what all these things are. Um, you have all of our websites. These are our four websites uh, from the four of us um there's so much information on each of them that brings you to other resources i mean you could probably just get lost there for a day a month a year um and thank you for being with us uh we you know all of us are here because we're passionate about building knowledge about the science of reading um you know for all to help all students learn to learn to read and succeed
0: well said thanks everyone
2: thanks
3: everyone thank
2: you